this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. The problem is right now bots are kind of dumb. Even the most sophisticated bots that we have can take very limited instruction. So you can't just speak to it naturally like you can with Siri or Google Now. And they're also, they're not particularly proactive. They can't learn a lot about you. But all of that technology already exists to build bots that are proactive, that understand a lot about you, that can make suggestions. It's just a question of somebody like sitting down and thinking that this is a problem valuable enough to solve. In terms of using AI and bots and everything for marketing, uh, we've already got most of the technology that we need. It's just a question of, of people actually using it. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. It is Saturday 15th of July 2017 where I'm at in Sydney, Australia and where my co-host Kate Frappel's at. It is Friday the 14th of July 2017. You're listening to episode 99, lucky number 99 on It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to tech, startups, entrepreneurship. I am the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. Um, also soon to be CEO and co-founder of Manage Social, which is looking beautiful. If you've signed up for the alpha, thank you for your patience. We're just wanting to get things really right and there's a lot of work to do. As always with me is my co-host Kate Frappel, who's coming to me live from Whistler in Canada. Kate is the design lead at Manage Flitter and Manage Social. Kate, thanks for joining us on the podcast. No worries. It's good to be back. And coming up later on in the show, have a fantastic interview with the executive strategist at HubSpot and author of How to Sell Better Than Amazon, Sam Malakarjanan, who very interestingly lives in a van while he's traveling and uh, does his executive strategist job at HubSpot. So we'll chat a little bit about that coming up later on in the show. Really fantastic interview. I really enjoy chatting with Sam. As always, we touch upon a couple of news items that are happening that's happening this week um, in a fantastic industry that moves at the speed of light. A few months ago, might have even been a year ago now, Adobe showcased what they called um, something, you know, Photoshop for audio, where you could almost create audio based on, I don't know, 20 minutes of someone's audio. What I mean by that if, is if you play 20 minutes of someone talking into uh, this Adobe program, then you could actually extrapolate that and make them say anything with their intonation and their voice. Um, really quirky and and uh, um, you can see how this could be um, problematic almost where you could make someone say anything in their own voice. Um, I've noted today that there's some researchers that have taken this even a step further and have extended that both to audio and video. Kate, tell us about these researchers and uh, what they've managed to do. Yeah, so essentially this is uh, some new AI technology. So the University of Washington has been playing around with. Basically, it takes an audio file, converts them into realistic mouth movements, and then graphs that over the top of another video. So I guess they're, they're mapping your mouth movements, and then they can put that on another video of you. So you essentially look like you're saying something you didn't. So basically, they can ingest old videos of you, right? And then they get a, a profile of the way you talk and the way your mouth uh, shapes are, as well as your audio intonations, and then essentially create a video of you 
um, saying anything and it actually looks like you're mouthing those words correctly even though you haven't said any of this in reality right yeah correct uh except they they can't make a video of you so you can take two separate videos and the audio from the first one uh they can overlap that on the second one so it looks like you're saying something you're not right but basically yeah yeah so you do have to have um an existing two separate pieces of footage but they could actually remap the way your mouth moves in that second video and they give an example of Obama and, uh, and they chose Obama, they said, because there's a lot of different footage out there so they can ingest all this footage and overlap and overlay some different audio onto a footage and it looks like he's actually been saying something that he never said. Yeah, exactly. So that they, they picked Obama for their experiment because he had just a lot of high-quality video footage that they could use. But what's interesting is they had to have 17 hours, so they had to sort of, uh, the, the tool or the app, I guess, had to learn uh, how Obama speaks and his facial movements and stuff with 17 hours worth of footage before they could do this particular transition. It's not bad, though. I mean, 17 hours is, is doable. It's less than a day. You leave something running for a day, and then you can map anything and, and have a little clip of Obama saying anything, and it looks exactly like him, almost exactly. They do note in the, the article that it's, um, you can see that it's a little bit awkward at points, but as a, as a first yeah. go, it's quite remarkable. Oh, definitely. I mean, and in the future, they want to bring it down to as much as one hour of footage so you could just get someone to read a book for an hour and record them and then yeah you could basically uh make that video of them say anything you wanted to say i can i can envisage a future where actors almost they can just be extrapolating actors in a movie where they only have to act a third of the movie and the rest of the two thirds is just extrapolated based on how they've yeah uh, how they've acted the the um of course, in the, wor- in, in the world we live in of fake news, um, quote-unquote, this is going to be an absolute disaster down the track where you really can't believe anything you see or hear. It's going to be incredibly difficult, right? Definitely. So that, that's, I guess, the biggest problem and uh, one of the things that the university researchers are avoiding because if this gets into the wrong hands... Essentially, you won't be able to trust anything you watch or hear. But, I mean, there are some good users as well. Um, For example, they want to collect the footage of somebody speaking, and then you could use that in Skype calls. So let's say, for example, I dress up and I look presentable for a meeting. I record myself talking, um, and so there's a video footage of me looking presentable. And then a week later... I'm in my pajamas, but I also need to have a important meeting with someone over Skype. Uh, so this sort of technology would allow me to have that meeting with them. They would see me dressed up nicely from when I did it a week ago, um, but I can talk. I can talk in the present moment, and it will. the footage of me looking nice will look like I'm presenting, so my mouth will move. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It basically it will basically, uh, in a sense, create a virtual reality for the the party watching you of yourself yeah. based on on what you do really look like. But in that moment, you might not to need to look right. like that. 
yeah exactly and, so and, you can just use the audio side of it but also like that, that sort of technology as well helps with like uh, shaky internet connections and also saves on mobile data because you're not really using your camera interesting interesting yeah and, and maybe i mean that that bandwidth is an interesting um if 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 the if the program locally can fill in the gaps somehow you can i guess have all new forms of compression right which mm. is essentially is you know jpegs and gifs and all of that are just all types of compression that uh, essentially you have could have new types of compression technologies that would allow us to to have the internet effectively move a lot faster because you need to transmit a lot less data so that's an interesting um, side effect of it. I mean, we all of this is really feeding into the the world of the future of AR and VR, and and where it's going to be really blurred between what's you know hard reality and what's a, a virtual and augmented or mixed reality. I guess is the term that's becoming more familiar. Where there's going to be pieces of both, right? Mm, definitely, definitely an overlay um, between like the audio and the visual, but also just senses in general, like we're going to be questioning absolutely everything. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I was thinking on the way in this morning that in two generations time, if this podcast is still sitting on a server somewhere and people listen to this, boy, is it going to sound so dated, Kate? Is it, you know, probably. all of it's <laughs> going to be so stock and standard and we'll be probably, you know, we're probably going to be teleporting around and, 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 and the kids are going to be laughing and saying, wow, look, they were sort of fascinated by, you know, that sort of <laughs> technology, which is, which is really, really quaint, right? So it's a uh, sure. It's, it's the, the stuff gets dated very quickly. So um, anyway, let let's see, let's see what uh, and you know I don't think Adobe's Photoshop for audio has hit um, commercial yet, has it? Uh, not not that I know of. Um, I know when I, I went to the Make It conference last year with Joe, who's sometimes on the podcast, and she, we were both pretty fascinated. They showcased it at that conference. So it was a year ago and I haven't really heard anything since. So, I mean, it could have got held up somewhere potentially. Yeah, look, I mean, to the last mile to make something commercial ready, I mean, we even experienced it with our products, you know, to get that 80% um, is one thing and then to get that last mile which makes it consumer ready is, is really hard. A lot of edge cases and um, you want to make sure that it's, it's, it's still going to do what it needs to do. Anyway, then we'll, we'll watch that space with interest. Um, another interesting bit of uh, interesting information coming, uh, interest, an interesting story coming out of the West Coast of the US. I've got really mixed feelings about this story. I see Google's um, life sciences arm is, is trying to take on the Zika mosquito-borne or mosquito-transmitted virus yeah yeah so when i originally read this i i was a bit the same i was like oh i don't know how i feel about it the further you read the more interesting it gets so essentially there so google has a life life sciences unit called verily and they have started releasing portion of two million lab made bacteria infected mosquitoes um, into an area in california called fresno um, so the project's called debug and the idea is that these 20 million mosquitoes have a bacteria called Molbachia, I think that's right, bacteria, which is harmless to humans, but it will prevent the Zika 
mosquitoes from breeding, I guess. So these male mosquitoes will mate with female Zika mosquitoes and therefore make the offspring infertile, which essentially stops the Zika virus from spreading. Fascinating. I mean, you know, growing up in Africa, one of the biggest problems is malaria. You know, this tiny little mosquito like that, that causes so much problems, you know. And um, all these mosquito-transmitted diseases um, are really, really difficult. And this is a really interesting approach to essentially just almost, you know, just, just, just stop the replication so the issue goes away. The problem is, the challenge is history has proven so many times that to introduce, you know, a type of biological solution to a biological problem creates another biological problem. You know, in Australia, we've got the cane toads, which were introduced in the sugar cane fields to eat the cane beetles, which were causing lots of problems. And of course, now what do we have? We have a, a problem with cane toads taking over the country. So I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert in mosquitoes or, or, or these issues. I mean, it sounds so elegant and neat. It almost sounds too good to be true. Yeah, it could be. I know what you're saying. The whole playing God thing is quite controversial and could have its side effects. This particular article says that uh, the, well, these Zika mosquitoes were only introduced in 2013 into California anyway. So it's unlikely they will have a uh, disastrous consequences. But also, like, most of these mosquitoes will be male, I'm assuming, and the male mosquitoes don't bite. They don't bite humans. They don't bite humans, yeah. no. And they don't. Um, and the bacteria that they've been injected with doesn't hurt humans either, only hurts, uh, I guess, the reproductive system of the female Zika mosquitoes. Yeah, I'm still nervous, Kate. I'm still nervous. I'm still nervous that so, you know this this bacteria they uh, they've been infected with will mutate and suddenly make males start biting, and then we get their bacteria plus the Zika. I don't know. It's just you know the history history has not. You know, have we worked out every single sort of uh, edge case, and 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 do we understand absolutely? everything about this life cycle and then what could potentially go wrong. I mean, these obviously aren't stupid scientists, so dare little old humble me question them. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess, yeah, playing, playing God at the end of the day is not really going to end well. But, I mean, <laughs> you might find out soon because they're going to bring it to Australia next. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, there, there we go, you know, and, and look, there are cases, you know, things like vaccines, for instance, you know, that have been incredibly successful and have changed mm. communities and mortality and modern medicine. And, you know, you could argue modern medicine in many ways is, is playing guard pacemakers and bypass surgery and all of these things. I just guess there's sometimes unintended flow on effects when with complex systems you know you you trying to mm. you're trying to trying to tweak a complex systems that are plugged into other complex systems and and that's are unpredictable almost i mean you even take like the finance system we don't even understand economics yet you know we we, mm -hmm. we still don't even understand how to keep a economy stable and and no one no one saw the 20 uh 2008 crash you know all these geniuses in the states like just no one saw it coming you know because these systems are incredibly complex 
So we just have to be humble about the complexity of them. But anyway, let's watch and see. And I hope, I hope the Zika virus just seems pretty nasty. So I really do hope that it actually does work well. And good on Google for investing in these, uh, you know, type of initiatives that uh, don't have a direct commercial payoff to them. So uh, as a yeah. Google small Google shareholder, I I, I do approve on them um, trying to invest in these type of uh, initiatives. Definitely. I think the, the the scariest thing, or maybe not the scariest thing, but the, a strange thing for me would be actually seeing them released, release swarms of these animals into the wild. So even at the end of this article, they say people in a particular neighborhood may notice a Verily van releasing healthy swarms of little Eesh. bugs throughout the streets. Yeah. That, that would freak me out a little bit to see that. I tell you, as someone that has spent a lot of time deep in the Australian bush, I'm talking 10 hours west of Sydney, right into the Australian bush, I have been around swarms of mosquitoes before. Um, summer, uh, when there's been a lot of rain and literally swarms of mosquitoes, and it is, it is, quite, it is quite something. It's something that you actually can't, can't picture. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, that's uh, the tech news for this week as always please email us podcast editor tweet us follow us on facebook going to take a short break and uh, after the break going to chat to sam malakujanin who's the executive strategist at hubspot and author of how to sell better than amazon and the most interesting part about his life he lives and works from a van digital nomad how cool is that we also i mean kate's sort of now a digital nomad i'm still in sydney but you know, it's, it's the dream these days so much for us to discover this world of ours. We all love traveling so much. Technology is enabling us a lot to travel, uh, a lot of us to travel and work. So we're going to chat to Sam after this break. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the business operations manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclist in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter and soon to be Manage Social. If you haven't signed up for uh, to be an alpha test on Manage Social, we're running a little bit behind with it because we want to get things just right, even for an alpha test, but it's looking beautiful. Particularly if you're an Instagram user, you're going to love what we have for you. Now, 
a lot to talk about in the marketing space. Um, you know, the rate of change in the marketing world. I mean, we do the, the Wednesday uh, social ROI chat where we try to talk to thought leaders in the space. And, you know, the marketing world is just so... The velocity has just gone absolutely insane. I try to stay on top of it and so often that I feel like I'm actually behind it. And I'm happy to say I've managed to find someone who's, who's uh, not only an expert in, in, in looking at the, the, the rate of change in the marketing world, but it's actually knee-deep um, in a product that helps with this, a HubSpot, which so many people have, uh, are familiar with. I've managed to find someone at the opposite end of my Skype line who uh, is a HubSpot marketing fellow and Harvard instructor and an expert on growth and marketing strategies for businesses and startups. Sam Malakarjunon, thank you for so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me and good job with the last name, by the way. Thanks. I've been practicing it a little <laughs> while. It's, uh, I think, uh, you know, it was one of the writers, I don't know if it was Dale Carnegie, who said, uh, the sweetest sound someone can hear is their own name, right? Yeah, <laughs> said properly. Indeed. So, so it's, um, <laughs> and, you know, my, my name's, uh, the spelling and the pronunciation is quite simple but you'd be amazed um, I would say 50% of the time people get it wrong it's like Grabber, Gerber, Gardner you name it it's, <laughs> which sort of surprises me but anyway Sam thanks so much for joining us at the podcast thanks for having me I'm looking forward to it so Sam um, firstly I was interested to see that uh, you work remotely for HubSpot you based I believe is it in Florida at the moment uh, a little bit more extreme than that. I was in Florida for a year and a half, but now actually my wife and I live in a van and we travel the uh, the continent full time. You, you literally live in a van. We literally live in a van. I mean, it's a really nice van that's been custom converted to be like a mobile office and mobile, you know, mobile residence. Um, so it's uh, RV is a more accurate comparison. Uh, but yeah, it's a, the Mercedes Sprinter van that FedEx uses to deliver packages. 19 feet long, you know, 10 feet high. That's it. Uh, I think I can hear every single listener now just going, ah, oh, that sounds awesome. That's, that's, that's fantastic. How do you organize bandwidth? Uh, bandwidth, you mean like internet? literally just for the internet? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've got, some, we've got some antennas on the top that are pretty cool. We've got a directional Yagi antenna that does cell, cell reception boosting. So I can be 30 miles from the nearest cell tower and still have full bars. And then we also have a Wi-Fi Ranger, so I can steal I can steal Wi-Fi realistically probably about a quarter of a mile through a city. So like where we are uh, parked today uh, in in the Yukon in Canada, um, I can steal Wi-Fi from their city hall, uh, which is kind of nice. Fantastic, and it's one thing that we get a little bit frustrated about in uh, Australia. We've actually got very good mobile internet, and people people use a lot of um, you know external Wi-Fi uh, sort of mobile internet dongles we call them. But public Wi-Fi is actually quite hard to come by in Australia compared to North America for some other reason. It might be because bandwidth is generally more expensive in Australia. Yeah, I mean, if you want to feel really bad about yourself, uh, go to Romania. I mean, the the free public Wi-Fi they have in like the mall is better than the premium Wi-Fi that I get uh, in my, you know, in, in my office or something like that. So, well, it's a very, it's a very sore point with uh, the startup ecosystem <laughs> in Australia, the whole Wi-Fi thing. But we, that, that that's a whole other issue. But Sam, I'm interested to know, you know, that there's a. There's the tools, two schools of thought when it comes to um, teams and remote teams. There's, uh, there's an increasingly popular school of thought um, of, of being, uh, you know, promoting or at least being comfortable with remote teams. And then there's the other school of thought, which is like, you know, more stricter on-site, face-to-face only. What's HubSpot's take on all of this? 
yeah, HubSpot's take on all of this is that we're going to hire the best people. Uh-huh. Um, generally, I've I have I have found it easier to manage a team in person. Um, I've managed teams in person. I've I've also managed a large remote team at HubSpot Labs. We had seventeen people spread from Bali to Bucharest. But you know, and, and you do you do lose a certain something. I think when you're when you're remote in terms of the collaboration and connectivity, but you you can sometimes get a boost in productivity because people aren't being interrupted constantly. And like I said, you get access to f- fantastic talent. Like one of the best SEO people in the world was in Bali, and when I needed him, uh, he wasn't in Boston. So, you know, the the awesome thing about the time that we live in is that I can still have access to him, you know, and still still leverage him. We we've uh, moved from a almost on-site only to very similar to what you said. I'd rather have the right person somewhere in the world than have someone who's almost right or not quite right sitting in our office. And I think uh, at least my, my philosophy at the moment, I guess, is hoping that the, the right person sitting somewhere in the world will compensate for um, all the, the, the challenges of not being face-to-face and time zone issues, which definitely exist. And, and you know, there's no doubt that first prize is being able to go for a walk in the park and sit and talk about an issue and, and, and uh, you know, have all that, the, the, the benefits of um, all the nonverbal communication as well as just the, the verbal communication. But in our industry, uh, teams are so difficult to come by. I mean, Sydney, the demand is so sky-high for technical staff, it's almost impossible to, to do it any other way. Yeah, and the the thing is you have to commit, right? So the worst thing that you can do is have a hybrid team where you've got some people um, in a local office and then some people who are remote because you end up developing insiders and outsiders. Um, so like people who hang out and go go get dinner or drinks after work uh, versus people who don't. And I, that can create some cultural issues. You know, I'm a big fan of how companies like Buffer have done it where they intentionally balance around the world to make sure they have all the time zones covered. So that you're never you're never favoring uh, one time zone or one or one uh, office or something like that, um, because it is hard, right? Like it's or you know to and even if you're going to have a hybrid team, if you do have an in, inside office, one of the things we do at or we started doing at HubSpot is we'll get different conference rooms or people will join the conference from their desk, uh, so that we all have sort of equal face time. We're all staring at the at the computer oh, screen you. and talking that yeah, way. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, totally. Because yeah, otherwise you're gonna you're gonna leave some people out. I mean, there's nothing worse than being on remote on one of these calls and then seeing somebody walk off screen to start drawing on a whiteboard that literally happened to me two weeks ago. Uh, you know, and then you know you don't want to interrupt the meeting to for just your one problem and it creates all these issues. So we we Focus. use a, we use a smart and we do have that hybrid team. We we do use a smart board. So in the, in the office we've got a smart board that that people can follow directly online and that's fantastic it's, a, it's only a one-way smart board though and I, I almost think that an interesting solution would be to to get everyone a smart whiteboard into their home office or their co-working space or that, you know, everyone has access to the same tools and some and and I know Google's got a new smart board but it's pretty expensive to get everyone five thousand dollars smart board would be uh, yeah. yeah you know but there's something around that's that collaborating around a whiteboard but yeah look it's still very very much work in progress, but it's um, so. Is the bulk of the team still in? It's Boston, I believe. Uh, we're we're pretty spread out now. The bulk of the team is in Boston, right. um, but we now have offices in Dublin, Sydney, Tokyo. So yeah, there is actually a HubSpot office uh, in Sydney. 
and then we just opened Berlin. Yeah, we just opened Berlin. So we uh, we're eighteen hundred people now, something like that. Seventeen hundred, eighteen hundred people. Fantastic. And what what I mean, your role, just your job title at the moment is a little bit uh, mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I I need to re- to rethink that. Uh, so we have, we have two tracks at HubSpot. Uh-huh. Um, we have the management track, which is what you would understand team lead, director, VP, C level, yada, yada. Uh, but we've really tried to also make individual contributor a plausible like career path here. So if you don't want to manage people, because managing people is a discipline and it is not sure. the only way to have a long-term career. Uh, but if you want to just like do work and crush work, we, we're trying to build these career paths. And so I moved over when I stopped managing HubSpot Labs uh, a year and a half ago, when, basically when I said I wanted to live on the road, because uh, I didn't want to manage a team that was based in Boston while I'm not based in Boston. That didn't yeah. seem fair. Yeah. yeah. So I switched back over to the indiv- individual contributor track. Um, and it's weird because like titles don't mean anything internally, right? But they mean things externally. But then I took on the role of teaching. So I'm teaching at Harvard and University of South Florida. And then I'm also our sort of designated speaker uh, for if we need to send somebody to speak at an event or a conference or something like that. Um, or do podcast interviews. Uh, that is also part of my full-time job now. Fantastic. So Sam, tell us, tell us a bit about, I mean, there's one of the latest buzzwords is AI and everyone's talking about AI and people are saying AI is going to save the world and other people are saying AI is going to destroy the world and uh, bots are becoming a big, a big thing. I know uh, Twitter's, Twitter's pushing sort of, you know, Twitter bots for customer service and um, Facebook's pushing their bot side of things. What's your view on bots, marketing, sales, um, you know, the point of evolution. I mean, I, I, I'm still, m- maybe, m- maybe I'm a little bit behind the curve, but I'm still yet to interact with a bot that is, provides genuine use and genuine value. One of our developers who's in Brazil, um, he's actually developed a few bots and I was chatting with him the other day about some of the most useful bots. And he says they are successful movie theaters in Brazil, etc., where you can, you can buy tickets through a bot. So I can, I can sort of see these use cases emerging, but it's still just not quite compelling enough for me. Yeah, it's not, it's not quite there yet. Um, I'm torn between thinking that most people in the world aren't worried nearly enough about bots and AI and the fact that there are some people who are hyperventilating for no reason. You know, I'm not worried about like a robot apocalypse Terminator style. I am, however, like optimistic about the impact of machine learning and AI on the ability to like make good decisions with data and do work faster. You know, once Watson really cracked that ability to understand unstructured data, so not reading data from a table, but like looking reading a book and being able to answer questions on a book. Um, this is IBM's uh, technology, right? Yeah, IBM Watson technology, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that that really like opened up a lot of doors because think about how many jobs are based on that, right? Like tech support or um, you know customer service to a great extent, uh, a lot of those things. Humans have had to answer the same stupid questions mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. in and day out for the last 100 years. Um, and now we're going to be able to you know, take some of those folks and let them work on more interesting problems um, while the bots answer the stupid questions that, that people like to ask. Um, so it's it's definitely going to have an impact. I, I, I can't imagine anybody who doesn't think that it's going to have an impact. The problem is right now bots are kind of dumb. Even the most sophisticated bots that we have can take very limited instruction. So you can't just speak to it naturally like you can with Siri or Google Now. And they're also, they're not particularly proactive. They can't learn a lot about you. But all of that 
technology already exists to build bots that are proactive, that understand a lot about you, that can make suggestions. It's just a question of somebody like sitting down and thinking that this is a problem valuable enough to solve. In terms of using AI and bots and everything for marketing, uh, we've already got most of the technology that we need. It's just a question of, of people actually using it. I think on the bots side of things, you know, I think w when you go to a doctor or you go to a lawyer, um, a lot of what you have is an exploratory chat where they information gather and then provide a solution, which is essentially what a bot does. And I can certainly see a world um, in the not too distant future where we do have bots or call them whatever you want, even on your phone where you have a conversation with li like Siri and it provides a best course of action. And they've already done some research. I mentioned this previously on the podcast with um, um, some um, oncology department did some research where they provided some yeah, diagnosis done by computers and a diagnosis done by a human. The rate of diagnosis was exactly the same, but where the computer really won in the end was suggesting, um, suggesting treatment that was more cutting edge because it had access to, its, to the whole database of latest, latest cutting edge treatment where doctors are obviously limited in, in that sense. So on the medical side of things and the legal side of things, but I think, yeah, I think, I, I think you, you touched on the main point there. You, 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 it's it's got to be less dumb you've got to be able to it has to be genuinely smart yeah but this is true of all technologies i mean you remember when smartphones first came out right so like i had the g1 by htc when it first came out and it was really just a novelty you know because it the battery life was like 90 minutes and it couldn't re like the G the gps accuracy was down to like i don't know 50 meters or something like that like it couldn't really do that much um but you know you've seen the bell curve of technology adoption for the people on the far left, the the innovators and early adopters of any given technology, it doesn't actually have to be that cool. It just has to be new uh, and they're going to use it. Um, and then they sort of help you flesh it out and figure out all the stuff that it needs to do. Um, so my, my guess is, you know, over the next five years, it's, you know, they're definitely going to use it a lot in medicine and the legal profession and things like that because it just makes sense there. Um, but then in terms of making it customer facing by the way you may actually have interacted with some bots and not known it that's a good point um and, and these have been around for a long time though sam i mean these the, these sort of chat bots have been around for almost as long as the internet so chat bots yeah so like smarter child and stuff on aol and messenger i don't know if you remember some of those uh yeah i remember ch chatting with those but those were very again very limited um they were all if then statements of if somebody says this then say this else do this the interesting thing with the AI bots that they have right now is they're starting to work in this this universe of unpredictability and probabilities, right? Where they, they were pretty sure that this is the right answer. And the bots of yesterday would have just spat out some generic platitude or said like, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't help you. Whereas the bots of today work a lot more like humans, which is I don't 100% understand your question, and I don't 100% know that this is the answer, but yet I'm still able to give you to to say what I think the question was and give you some answer. That's that's a remarkably difficult technological achievement. So, what are some use cases for bots at the moment um, that that you feel are are good use cases and provide genuine value? And it's more than just early adopter. It's a fun thing to to spin the wheels on. Yeah. Again, uh, in addition to um, to like the medicine stuff, which is which is you know very valuable. Uh, business intelligence. Like, I want to just be able to ask my computer or my BI tool, um, like, 
who is the customer most likely to respond favorably or who in our database is most likely to respond favorably to this new product that we're launching. Um, and it should understand my question, understand the context of what's going on, uh, and be able to like spit me back out an answer, right? Or, you know, which of my sales reps are the best at closing deals from lead to opportunity? Some of it's just that basic natural language processing, uh, because you don't, there are people in the company who have interesting questions, but who don't have the ability to write like SQL queries, right? They're not going to, they're not going to like run their own custom queries or custom analysis and whatever the, 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 the database is. Um, so you really need to like break that, that barrier and unlock all of the business intelligence for people who are non-technical. And then again, the other one that, that just makes the most sense is going to be uh, customer, customer service and technical support. Um, because, you know, I've, I've done tech support and stuff in the past and, seven or eight times out of 10, the answer to the, qu the customer's question is in the documentation. Uh, they just prefer to ask me and call me instead of reading the documentation. Uh, so, you know, that's cool. Like those, the, the top 20% of queries, let's continue to let humans handle that. But let's take the 80% of queries that are just them asking a question that they could read and get the answer for and defray that using, using technology. Now, HubSpot is uh, known to be one of the the successes of uh, the, the marketing um, sort of technology world, marketing automation, whatever. Um, it's sort of how do you how do you guys describe yourself? So we we describe ourselves as a growth stack because we have both sales and marketing software, um, sales CRM and sales enablement tools, uh, and then also the the marketing tools. So Sam, I mean, we have a lot of uh, wannabe entrepreneurs who listen to the show and early stage entrepreneurs. They'd be interested to know what's what's been some of the secret sauce to HubSpot success because the brand has just done so well. Everyone knows about HubSpot. A lot of people are using HubSpot, and and I believe you guys have also cracked a good price point on HubSpot in terms of you know that the premium product type of uh, price point, which is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, there's always temptation to move up into the enterprise space um, and to focus on selling to the Fortune 500, uh, but there's only 500 of those folks, and they're also a pain in the butt to work with. And the sales um, cycle is long and hard. Yeah, you got to fly like 12 people out to take 14 different people to 26 different steak dinners. Like, yeah, it's it's I it's it's a giant pain. So like, we really like this the small and mid-sized business space. There's a lot of them. And the challenge is like the, the potential leverage is huge, you know? So, you know, we think of marketing in our space, uh, we think of like blogging, for example, we might think that that's saturated, but for somebody who's, who's an entrepreneur or who's in a small and mid-sized business, yes, blogging about marketing is saturated, but there might only be, you know, three other blogs, uh, on the internet about toenail fungus remover. That's a real story. Uh, we had somebody who like launched a blog about toenail fungus remover and, di and did quite well. Um, niches on know, the internet so, work really well, right? Yeah, it works great from a social perspective, from a content perspective and from an SEO perspective. So, you know, that's been like the really cool thing for us is it's opened up this infinite long tail, like helping small and medium sized businesses as well as startups, like solve the, the easy low hanging fruit problems that they have. Um, and so, so that they can grow. So that's, yeah, we've, you're right. We've, we've definitely tried to stay in that sort of small and mid sized business space at that. Uh, that that free and then up to infinity uh, price point. Do you think it was advantageous that HubSpot was not founded in Silicon Valley in what sometimes people call the echo chamber of Silicon Valley? I mean, you're one of the the few higher profile breakouts. That's you know, you guys are East Coast slash remote. Um, do you think it was to your advantage not being there? 
I do. And I, I have my own like complaints with, with Silicon Valley and, and the, the, the people and attitudes over there. But, um, bring it you know, on. We didn't... Share, share them with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we, it's a different mentality. You know, Boston, MIT, Hart, like, who, Brian and Darmesh were, were Sloanies, um, Harvard, like that sort of mentality of like very methodical going for the ground doubles over and over and over again. Um, whereas in Silicon Valley, I feel like everybody's so terrified of missing the next Twitter that, that they, they don't make as like methodical decisions. So they get way, way, way more home runs because they have a lot of cash and they're just like swinging at the bat. Have you ever seen the movie signs? I haven't. No. It's a good movie. First of all, it's kind of, it's kind of an old Mel Gibson movie. Uh Uh, but in, in it, there's this baseball player, right? And he, he holds the largest number of, uh, home runs in his, in his hometown, Mm -hmm. but he also holds the largest number of strikeouts. Uh, and when I think about Silicon Valley, I think about that guy because, uh, they have the largest number of home runs, but then they also have VCs who would literally be better off putting their money in, um, in an indexing fund and just like pinning to the for- to the fortune 500 rather than making all the, all the volume of bets that they have. I, I liked the VC, uh, ecosystem in Boston. They're smart. They're sharp. They're, they are extremely hard and intelligent, um, and, and, and they ask hard, penetrating questions. Um, and then just also the talent in Boston, right? It's like it's crappy outside all the time. So we, so there is this that mentality of just like sit down, crush your work, like crunch through it. And it's just those ground doubles over and over and over again, uh, which I, you know, I think we'll see more. Hub, HubSpot and Wayfair may be some of the early breakouts from Boston, but I definitely don't think we're going to be the only ones. I think Boston and, and the East Coast is definitely going to going to have a resurgence here. I mean, Boston rode the wave of, uh, I think the first wave of biotech, right? It was, right. It was a lot of it was based out of Boston and there's the Boston dynamics, the famous robotics company is still, I assume in Boston. Yeah. So biotech has always sort of been where we pinned our hat. I mean, and you're talking about Boston, right? It's like where we invented radar and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's MIT and Harvard, two, two very, very famous schools. But what we didn't, you know, what, what people moved out to California was, you know, it was nicer weather is also just the ecosystem was there. The VCs were there. And, uh, in addition to the schools, um, you know, Zuckerberg founded Facebook in Boston, mm. uh, and then decided to move to, out to California instead. So, you know, you've got to have all those pieces. You've got to have the, the, the school, you've got to have the money, you've got to have the talent and you've got to have sort of the startup ecosystem. Um, you've got to have a couple of those big wins so that a bunch of people, you know, spin off and then go start their own. You know, think about PayPal and Microsoft and Amazon, how much of the startup ecosystem of the West Coast comes from people who were successful at those companies then leaving to start their own. I hope that no one leaves HubSpot, but if they do, um, I hope it's because they're going to launch like an awesome Boston-based startup. I think um, I've spent a bit of time on the West Coast and the East Coast, mainly San Francisco, a little bit of LA, and then uh, mainly New York. I've been to Boston once, and it's definitely worth, if if you are out of the U.S. or maybe even in the U.S., not on the coast, it's definitely worth going to both um, San Francisco as well as New York and, and slash Boston, because there is a different sensibility um, in those ecosystems. For example, one of the VCs in the States, um, or the private equity people, she actually brought up a very good point. She said, you know, in New York, it's even just physically very tough. And that, and that sort of 
sort of filters out and, and attracts a certain type of person that, that can handle that, you know, a robustness that can even deal with the physical challenges of New York because New York's physically quite, I find it actually quite a physically difficult <laughs> environment to be in. It's noisy, it's dirty, it's either extremely hot or either extremely cold. Um, and the West Coast is, is pretty mild. So all these things that, that don't seem like they they significant but but on scale they all contribute to to, to the culture that's created there yeah absolutely I, I maintain that that one of the reasons the northeast has such a great culture is because or such a great business culture now is because it's so miserable outside all the time um so like what else what else are you going to do but stay inside and work uh, when i live in florida you know i go home i'm like i don't want to sit inside and work i want to go outside and go to the beach because it's perfect beautiful weather uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe that's part of it, right? You know, it's just uh, mis- misery breeds uh, breeds focus. It's yeah. Look, I mean, in Sydney, it is. <laughs> it it's you know, everyone's obsessed with the lifestyle here, and uh, you know, if it's not if it's not perfect, if it's a little bit too wet, a little bit too windy, a little bit too hot, a little bit too cold, a little bit too cloudy, the the winch factor just goes goes right up. People <laughs> are, so, are so spoiled here. But there, there is a big push here. You know, we've got Atlassian. I'm looking out onto their offices, you know, uh, from from my office where I'm doing this podcast. But it, it is, you know, humans humans have a have a at the end of the day there's there's human nature and when it's a bad weather outside there's nothing better to sink your teeth into a into a nice um into a nice chunky project so any any other tips that that um sam that hubspot has the takeaways that in terms of really helped you become a this quality company and quality product that it is today I mean, that's, that's a pretty broad question, right? So like, you know, there's the culture code I think was, was very key and stuff like that. But I will say what we have, what we did really, really well, uh, was focus. Um, so the, the hardest thing to do when you've got two like billion dollar opportunities is not do both of them. It's pick one of them and ignore the other one entirely. I was talking about this in, in Turkey. I was giving a talk in Turkey and there's a Hebrew proverb that uh, he who chases two rabbits catches none. Mm-hmm. That really has been the secret to most of our success, both on the growth side for the core company and then also in labs, right? It's how can we be allow ourselves to be distracted in a very focused way, um, do one thing at a time and do it, do it very, very well. And then it was, you know, it was very core to us to really define not – not the product we were selling, but the problem we were solving. Um, and, and we everybody says that all the time. But my, my favorite quote on this comes from Henry Ford where, when he said that uh, if he'd asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like if, if in 2006, if we had asked people what they wanted, right, they, w- they want uh, something that can spam email faster. They want something that can like, you know, send more auto DMs on Twitter faster. Right? Like it was it was all about how can we – marketing was becoming like how how – but much of a pain in the butt can we be to consumers? And that may be what marketers wanted because we knew it worked uh, back then. But what they actually needed uh, was a better way to build a healthier inflow of customers and customer retention system. Um, and the better way to do that was inbound marketing. So instead of being incredibly irritating, offer value first. Uh, it's the weirdest thing in my life. Uh, so when I say I started in sales, one of my first jobs was those really irritating people in the mall who try and sell you cell phones. Mm -hmm. Um, I trained them. Um, so like I was really good at irritating people. That was like part of what we did. And then I come to HubSpot and I hop on sales calls and people are like excited to have HubSpot sales reps calling them, which (laughs) is bizarre. 
Uh, but it's because like we're not going to try and sell you. Like, e- even if you try and get us to sell you um, on the first call talking with somebody, they're not going to do it, right? It's not their process. They want to talk about you and, and offer help and and you know give you advice because that's the sales process that we know that works. So that that was again really core to our success is not building you know another email spam tool, which we could have. Um, not building, you know, another social media spam tool or something like that, but really figuring out like what was it our customers needed. They, they needed healthy, sustainable growth, um, and then what were the components of what made healthy, sustainable growth? Inbound marketing is not good just because it like makes us feel good about ourselves and makes us feel like less terrible people. Um, inbound marketing is more economically efficient. You will acquire customers at a cheaper cost and you will have better long-term monetization because you generally have better retention from those customers. So yeah, that, that was, those were sort of our secrets, like the focus, um, and then being very, very clear about the job to be done, about the, uh, the value that we wanted to create, to create for our special type of customer. I do think though you, uh, being in the, in the mall trying to sell cell phones, um, <laughs> I do think that probably gave you an understanding of the sales process and about fulfilling that need because when you're face to face with someone or you're on the phone with someone, you can certainly explore. It's, it's, it's much more stark, the reality, whether they need your product or they not need your product and even dealing with objections, you work on your value proposition and you understand what's missing and it might have given you, it, it might have given you a good foundation to take the next stage to understand this whole inbound marketing um, you know, value proposition. I think I think all marketers should call some leads. I, I agree. Um, for I agree. for me, it's it's so one one of the most transformative things somebody said to me was early in my career. Uh, we had a a, a a VP named Jean, Jean Hopkins, um, who told me that her customer is the sales team. Right, like my job is to queue up good conversations between the sales team and the prospect, um, at least in, in the B two B model. My sales team works in the same building as me. So like imagine if your customers actually lived in the same building as you and you could like go grab drinks with them whenever you wanted. And yet most marketers have, first of all, definitely no background in sales, but they don't even bother like talking to sales, right? Because sales is kind of a pain in the butt to talk to because sales reps like to complain and yada, yada, yada. But that, that for me is the number one thing missing from most growth companies is that really, really tight alignment between sales and marketing. As we grew, by the way, we didn't actually have marketing sit together and sales sit together and services sit together. We had teams together by persona, right? So the marketing Mary team or the mid-market team for the U.S., those marketers sat next to those salespeople, sat next to those customer success uh, onboarding and, and support folks because it was much more important that the marketers hear the conversations that the sales team was having with that type of persona uh, than it was that the marketing team be next to the other marketers. Like we have Trello. We can all figure out how to manage uh, marketing campaigns. By far the harder thing to do is understand these customers that we have living in our building, the sales team. So what's, the, uh, what's been one of the most successful for your own marketing and, and branding exercises in HubSpot? Has it been your blog? I know you guys have been, you were very early on the content marketing side of things. Has it been, um, I, I know in Sydney recently there was, a, um, there was a, a mini conference that you guys did. Is it just a combination of everything? I mean, the, the, the blog and SEO have, been by far the greatest drivers, both from a, a return on investment perspective, from a growth perspective. I mean, we generate, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's something like 25 or 30,000 leads a month off of our blog wow. um, alone. And that, that's just like net new first touch from that month. You know, so that's been, we, we stuck with it, man. Like we really, and it was hard. 
you know, so, you know, there was only one person running the blog, uh, back in the day. Cause there were, you know, seven people on the entire marketing team. Um, and it's hard, but we have written like, I want to say 5,000 or 6,000 blog articles. We've got hundreds of eBooks and webinars and, and kits and stuff like that. Uh, and that's, that commitment to sticking through it is what has taken us through to where we are right now to where we can grow cost effectively. Um, if we were having to grow purely off of, you know, the sales team doing outbound prospecting and BDRs and expensive, um, expensive. Yeah. It's super, super expensive. Whereas right now we could take the entire HubSpot marketing team on a cruise for a month and the sales team would probably still get, probably still get as many leads as they got with us here. Uh, (laughs) that wouldn't last forever, right? We, We need the marketing team there to innovate, you know, but just the, the inertia that we've built up over all the, all the content we've created and all the people that we've helped is that's, that's been our real core, core differentiator. That's, Sam, what's your, what's your country revenue split? Is it predominantly U.S.? Is it something like 80-20 or is it the opposite? I know Google's, I think, is almost sitting at around 50-50 what their revenue split is in terms of U.S. and non-U.S. Hold on a second. So there is, there is a difference between working at a publicly traded company and working at a non-publicly uh, traded I'm company. Sure. Uh, you guys so are still I'm, private, I'm, right? No, we're public. Yeah. Oh, you're public. I didn't realize that. Yeah, we IPO'd. Uh, we IPO'd uh, maybe two years ago. Oh, well, um, yeah. But yeah, so that's why I'm actually looking up. I, I have this sheet that I keep on things that are material, non-public information that will get me sent to Martha Stewart's uh, <laughs> right. favorite retreat. Wouldn't wouldn't um, want you to wouldn't want you to do that. I mean, I yeah. mean, anything even just indicative yeah, of so its majority. Thirty percent of our of our total revenue is international, and that's up sixty four percent year over year. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's 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 probably a very uh, it's a very undercated market um, internationals. Um, so uh, we, we sort of the opposite. Mad manage Flitter. We predominantly U.S. and we only two percent Australian revenue, which I like to tell Australians, which surprises them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think I should get on a uh, on on a in a van or a yacht, Sam, because our customers aren't really where we are at, which is not always a good thing to be away from them, right? Yeah, but I mean, you know, Australia was a great market for us just because it had a relatively similar cost of living. Everybody spoke English. Like we didn't even have to translate the product for uh, initially. Um, so that was our that was one of our first international offices was in Sydney. So yeah, we've we've had we've had good luck in Australia, uh, and then also you know Latin America has been remarkable for us, and then and then the European market's been remarkable for us as well. Latin America is that um, being South America or, or sort of further north, including Mexico as well. Uh, yeah, so it's it's South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Um, I, I actually was ran our marketing expansion into Latin America initially, and while the like cartographers may count some of these areas as as North America, from a functional perspective, right? The the marketing team marketing to people in Argentina have more in common with the marketing team marketing to people in Mexico. Sure. Um, so I I split Latin America up into two markets, Brazil. And then everyone else, right? Uh, because Brazil is big and weird, and its own like interesting market. Um, and then everybody else, though, they don't really seem to care if it's their localized version of Spanish. They don't seem to care if it's their country code, top level domain. Or, like they just want it to be in Spanish and be about the problems that they face in the region. Right. So yeah, we built actually one of the most Sorry. successful marketing blogs in Spanish as well as HubSpot.es. They're probably used to having to be a little bit flexible around um, that side of things and having to sort of uh, – that it's not perfect in their sort of exact localized language. They're probably comfortable with that fact. 
Yeah, I mean, when you're when you have such diversity, you sort of have to be right. Um, it's 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 kind of embarrassing in the United States how few of us speak a second language uh, because I go to Europe or I go to Asia and almost everybody speaks like the national language, the regional language and English. And I'm like, I can sort of do Spanish kind of. But yeah, you're right. You know, when you when you live in a diverse region like Latin America or, or Asia, you have to expand your expand your horizons. Mexico and Brazil are an interesting market for us. Uh, Mexico, Brazil, Japan are, are, are three markets which I would love to push harder on. But but our U.S. market is just so big that again, coming back to your focus side of things, for us to start, yeah. we're a tiny team, we're a bootstrap company. For us to start trying to localize and support in other languages, it's just not worth it at this stage. But um, oh my god, I can kill you. Going going international too soon can can going international. Okay, focusing on multiple national markets, right? So I know I realize. To you, the U.S. is international, but um, that can kill you. It's it's way more complicated than people think because um, localization is not just translation, right? Like you have to have the cultural and all the other aspects that go into localization. You, now you have people in these multiple offices. You've got to deal with multiple currencies. Uh, I mean, we are still still getting our feet underneath us, you know. And we've had a thousand people working on this for the last like four years um, with our internationalization protocols. So I. I definitely am not going to judge anybody who says that they want to focus on a single uh, a single regional market for a period of time. And even in the English-speaking language, I mean, we've had a couple of um, quirks over the years with things like jokes, right? That we've got on on our platform when 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 it loads, there's some sort of silly jokes, and some of those have really offended people, you know, in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, I'll give you an example. When we first launched Manage Flitter, our free plan. Um, we called it the cheapskate plan, right? Because in Australia, it's a bit of a term of endearment, right? People will self-refer to themselves and say, oh, I'm a bit of a cheapskate. I'm just, I'm going to buy, you know, the cheaper car, whatever it is. And um, someone wrote through incredibly upset. And then they said, you know, how dare you insult me that just because I don't have money and I want to use your free product, you're <laughs> calling me a cheapskate. And, and it's hard to think of all these sort of edge cases, right? And with, oh, man. With, with internationalization, you've just you you're doubling that challenge at least, if not tripling it. I yeah. So I learned that the hard way as well. Um, I had part of my user experience team when I was running Inbound.org was based in Eastern Europe, and they just have they have no concept of like a politically correct sense of humor. Um, and some of the some of the and I they wanted to let me make them a uh, they wanted to make a comic strip. Um, as a as a piece of content, because you know we've done a lot of blogging and everything else, but we'd never really experimented with comics. And so I was like, yeah, you know what what harm could it do to let these guys uh, and, and girls draw out some comics? Uh, and then they started sending me drafts, and I'm like, that is wildly offensive. Like, no, you can't you can't say that here. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's there's the and there's cultural issues too, right? So um, I still remember my. My guy from like rural Idaho meeting up with my guy from London right. um, and then getting into like a ridiculous debate around gun control. Oh, um, yeah, you yeah. didn't want to go there. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, it's it, it adds it adds a, a ton of complexity and, and, and challenges from from a team cultural perspective. Uh, and then also definitely from a messaging perspective, right? Like when you're a startup, you're trying to focus on a very clear message for a very specific persona and you're trying to not let yourself get distracted. Uh, if you're going to toss on to that you know, all these different uh, cultural nuances about having to, to, to localize and not, not offend people and have the jokes. 
uh, makes sense, you're, you're going to have a hard time. It's going to be a lot of work. Now, Sam, you've also written a book, How to Sell Better Than Amazon, which is available on Amazon, which is fun. <laughs> yeah. so, so that book's available on Amazon. And um, I've taken up a, a, a lot of your time. We're going to be linked to all your bits and pieces on the, the show notes. Really enjoyed talking with you. And, um, and maybe we can chat again in the future, have a, have a catch up and see where all this marketing tech, we, we just touched the surface on a lot of this. But um, um, Sam Melikarjanen, um marketing fellow at HubSpot and former head of growth at HubSpot Labs. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, a definite theme um, that's emerging these days is the remote work. And it's interesting to see that a company even like HubSpot supports that in certain instances. I think there's definitely no one-size-fits-all. And, uh, you know, sometimes you do need people, especially if an existing team is at a... a at a locale um, that it's hard to have one person remotely but it's exciting times we live in where an executive you know someone with with a a key role at a a big listed company can actually be on the road as a digital nomad oh definitely Uh, as soon as he said that I was surprised that he could do it from a van I mean there seems to be a lot of people doing the you know I guess digital nomad, but they're they're traveling, you know, and they stay in one space for, I don't know, six months at a time, and then they keep traveling. That, that's sort of a little bit more, I guess, plausible at the moment. But from a van, that's like another level. Trying yeah. to find internet and like each country is going to have different providers. It's it would be a challenge. Well, I think Sam is uh, in the US only, from what I understand. So that would make it a little bit easier. Uh, but yes, definitely internet connectivity. Would, would definitely be a pain. I believe um, in Bali, which is a very popular place for holidays, for Australians to holiday at because it's only about five, six hours from Sydney flight and it's, it's quite cheap. I believe there's a lot of developers from Eastern Europe, especially in winter, that go to Bali and just base themselves in Bali. It's cheap. They, they're all working remotely as coders, as developers, and they're based in a nice part of the world. So it's, the revolution is, is sort of here already, but um, we'll see how it will, it will play out. And, and if you're a small company and, and you're struggling to find good team members, which, which we know all about um, as a small company, consider hiring remotely because it's worked well for us and a lot of big companies still couldn't be bothered and don't want the hassle and you've got that little advantage to get a good candidate that perhaps can't live or doesn't want to live in a big city or an expensive city what do you think about the topic of bots kate i've noticed that facebook is becoming sort of a bit more um, they surfacing their bots in messenger a lot more and sam's points about the bots um, still not quite being there yeah i mean he, he made an interesting point that um that they're sort of very widely available, but nobody's spent enough time on them to make them 
as accurate as some of the services Siri might um, address, for example. So I think you, I think you made a good point that in the future we're going to see some very sophisticated bots, and that that's exciting. At the moment, I'm not a huge fan of using the bots, only because I mean, if you had like a generic type of question on a website or even through Facebook Messenger, they're okay. But if you have specific questions, they they're not smart enough to answer them for you yet. So they're sort of a bit of a pain. You know what I think is going to be one of the first industries to have to really provide significant value through bots. And I just think of this every time I'm at the doctor is the medical industry doctors because the process with the doctor is just so conversational and there is no reason why, I mean, if if we are ready in 17 hours, as we spoke about earlier in the podcast, in 17 hours, you can teach a computer to understand the way you use your mouth to mouth words. How much can we teach a computer in a week? two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, a year, two years, three years, four years about about diagnosing a patient, right? Or at least 80% mm. of the diagnosis and then maybe escalating 20% of that to a human doctor. Australia's got big problems in rural areas where they can't find doctors at all. No one wants to work in these rural areas. They sort of bribe migrant doctors yeah we'll give you a visa if you work in a rural area for five years they really struggle imagine you've got a fantastic bot there that you sit and you have a conversation and 80 percent of cases can be dealt effectively by this bot definitely i mean even i know in sydney it's a big uh bit of an issue waiting rooms and waiting to speak to a doctor you can be in there for hours sometimes you you love if you that could have don't a, you? Oh, can't stand them can't stand doctors <laughs> appointments i avoid them Mm. but um but i guess what i would like to see would be if you could have a bot you could put in all that information you know your age and your weight and your height and just all the all the generic questions the doctors ask you about in the first instance anyway i mean it could even you could even have a machine that took your temperature and things like that before you even spoke to a doctor so the machine would sort of i guess recommend your illness to the doctor so that the time that you spent talking to the doctor would be decreased so then everyone would move through faster does that make sense absolutely look i think medicine is there's there's aspects of medicine particularly surgery where technology has impacted significantly and it's so obvious how technology has really just made such a huge difference. And there's, there's the front end almost of the, the medical industry, um, you know, interacting and that initial diagnosis and, and, and that whole process. I mean, the fact that there's no universal record for yourself. I mean, you know, every Definitely. time I go into the doctor and fill out the same or the dentist and fill out the same information. I mean, 2017 and we still filling out our date of birth and our, you know, I had a chat to, um, when I had some bloods taken a few months ago, I had a chat to a very friendly nurse there. And just, I said, you know, it's amazing that everything's still so paper-based. It's paper and stickers and signing and observing. And she said, you know, the system's evolved over so long and to be so trustworthy and all these checks and balances that she doesn't think that it's it's going to change much. That the medical industry is still so paper based, you know. So definitely, that's why I think people wouldn't particularly trust a bot to diagnose them. But 
I think a lot of people would trust it to to take that generic information, answer some basic initial questions, and then you go and speak to a human. I think it's just a trust thing at the moment. People would rather get the final diagnosis from a professional. Yeah, but it could still compress their time and, and help them. Definitely. And help Definitely. them a lot. Um, I would love it if I could talk to a bot first and then get the final diagnosis and the important part from a human. Look, already, I mean, people self-diagnose on Google. So, you know. Yeah, doctors hate that. Yeah, and, and let's let's just do a better a job of that, you know. Yeah. And, Even if you could get your script filled from a bot, that would be cool as well. If you knew what you had to go to the doctor for, if you're on like regular medication, but it's not the type you can buy over the counter at the chemist, you have to go to the doctor and get a script. You just go back, put your information in, say, this is what I want. I just want another script and it prints one out for you. And there's already precedent. I mean, I've mentioned a few times on the show that there was research done by a, 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 you know, a bot type of system diagnosing people with cancer and uh, comparing it to oncologists. And the, the rate of detection was exactly the same between the human and the computer system, but the computer system excelled at one area and that was recommending treatments because the computer obviously has access to all the cutting edge uh, treatments, all the information on the cutting edge uh, treatments, whereas a, a doctor can't be across all of that. He's just got, he's limited by, um, you know, the human um, retention and, and, and capacity. So there are certain areas where, where this will be absolutely exceptional. And in, for someone who's facing a, a, a tricky cancer diagnosis to be aware of some obscure experimental treatment or trial going on somewhere in the world could literally be um, life-saving. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I like I would very much trust a computer if it was going to give me a list of, I guess, recommended treatments and I was in a situation like that. I think, you know, and this actually brings me to, I'm excited to say episode 100 is next week and we've got a very, very special guest, Kevin Kelly, who was I was lucky enough to talk with now. If you were around the internet 1.0 in the 90s. Kevin Kelly will be familiar to you. He's one of the founding editors of uh, Wired magazine. And he's written an incredible book that we speak about. And one of his predictions about the future is that we're not going to have these these generalist Android AI humans walking amongst us. They're going to be incredibly specialist sort of AI um, devices that we deal with, these niche devices that we d deal with. So we'll have specialist medical devices and, and uh, that, that, you know, you, you're not going to be dealing with this generalist robot that's a doctor and a, a bus driver and that you, you're going to have a medical bot or even, dare I call it, a, a robotic type of human person. But that's, that's going to be their limitation and their only specialization. We're going to develop these really specialist niche areas for these, um, these AI devices. That would be cool. Forms. Um, that would be cool. And it's a lot less threatening to like, just the human race in general if they know that these things can, that they have a limitation, you know, they're not just a superhuman yeah, and that's and that's what he argues. We're going to we're going to be live in tandem very much and alongside. It's not going to be competitive. It's going to be for our own benefit. You know, he's got a very positive 
view of the future. It's a fantastic book. Um, I'll just pull up the name of the book that we will be talking about. With Kevin Kelly, it was really... So, um, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape our future it's a fascinating book because he breaks down a lot of where we at and where we're going to but he's an incredible writer and he's an incredible futurist so i really recommend if you're interested in where the world's going and particularly if you also if you're an entrepreneur you know you always want to sort of be moving a little bit towards where the industry is walking to, working to uh moving towards for instance the med this medical side of things boy someone who nails all of this is there going to be a, a a big market for it and it's a lot harder than it's we're making it sound, no doubt. Otherwise, people like Google would have would have got there. But um, but there's always that theory too. I've heard a few times that the technology that we're going to be using in ten years' time is already here, but I guess humans just aren't ready for it. And we haven't stitched it together. That's always yeah. You know, if you take the the iPhone, it, it was the fact that it was a lot of the technologies got stitched together and, and became cheap enough. And it's you always need a few factors aligning for it to come together. Sure, but yeah, even on a psychological level though, you know, like the, the idea of robots at the moment is so threatening to people. But in 10 years, it'll be nothing. Look, they've, I, I, shared a, um, I shared a video on my Twitter a couple of weeks ago of uh, our dear team member who was on the podcast about the blockchain, Jimmy, who unfortunately was in a bad car accident and, and I've been visiting him in hospital. And the hospital has a robot that moves the trolleys of linen from the laundry up to the different floors. And I actually shared a video on my, on my Twitter. I filmed this, this robot and it was quite incredible. It obviously talks to the lift through the you know IoT Internet of Things. It gets in the lift, and, and it doesn't look like a human. It looks like a flat sort of like little little sort of trolley on wheels, and it goes into the lift. The lift senses it's there. Goes down to the basement. This this little trolley slides under the big trolley goes back into the lift, goes to the right floor and moves this trolley of linen into a holding area and goes back into the lift. And it was really quite interesting because I literally saw in front of my eyes how they've removed a job or two. This, this device has moved, <laughs> removed a job or two. Not, not funny if you're the person losing your job, but it's almost was the technological evolution happening before my eyes because I could picture previously someone had to do that and go get the fresh linen and bring it up floor by floor by floor these different and move it into the holding area so the nurses can take these fresh linen it was um, and it was just moving amongst the people and the staff hadn't even had obviously been conditioned already weren't really noticing it and it was it was quite interesting to watch definitely I actually saw that video and I thought oh that's pretty cool uh, I was just more wondering as well because it was so small. People were going to trip over it. You wouldn't know it was there. Um, but Sam also made a, a good comment in the interview uh, similar to the idea he said about people losing their jobs. Uh, he was talking about more on a customer support side of things. But the idea that these like humans currently are answering the same stupid questions, he says, like day in and day out. But if you can replace replace that job with a bot then those people can be put to a better use or on more interesting projects well i think you know that's always the promise of our industry right and that's always the argument is that you know jobs you want people to be doing jobs where they stimulated and where they fulfilled and 
you know, the job of moving the trolley, uh, a trolley of linen from the basement up floor by floor, can someone find that fulfilling? I mean, it's also very elitist of us to say that it's not fulfilling to someone because I've got friends that do quote-unquote menial jobs and they're actually quite satisfied and they actually are quite happy with it. So, I think plenty of people would enjoy also just depends on like your age and demographic and stuff but there are some jobs similar to that you know somebody might like to do a couple of days a week doing moving the sheets around it means they get to talk to people they get out and about it's like it's not necessarily a menial job you know but I just you know they potentially uh, like Sam's argument would be that there'd be another job similar or a little bit more productive that they could do absolutely and that's and that's it's it's hard to quantify that and it's hard to really see you know that person where where are they now and what they're doing i mean i also see it as very different amongst different countries for instance you know in america and south africa where i'm originally from where there's a very very large group of people that didn't have the the luxury of education and sometimes they forced into default uh, roles just by virtue of their circumstance is quite different I find it to Australia which is a very privileged very wealthy country where sometimes people you know in, in roles that are, are, are less uh, professional or academic for whatever you would like to call them there's they they coming more from a position of empowerment still even though they sort of simple roles they're coming at it more from a position of choice than from default and I find that's quite a different outcome for everyone does that does that sort of make sense yeah yeah and it reminds me as well of another article i read this guy built a bot for lawyers so this particular bot could figure out small problems you had like a parking fine for example and would write you some strongly worded letters which saved you time from going to a to a lawyer but the argument was that these bots were going to start taking the jobs under the lawyer, for example, like the paralegal or the secretary, things like that, which meant that people who weren't getting educated couldn't couldn't find an entry level job. Like you had to be like a lawyer or nothing. Like for example, like a paralegal couldn't move mm. over time by working. They couldn't move into being a lawyer. You know, they you had to be a lawyer or nothing because the bots did everything under that. And if you take the hospital example, right? Maybe they this job would have previously been done by a student on the weekends that would have got exposed to the medical industry would have learned a little bit would have got inspired to become a nurse or a doctor and would have sort of been a funnel into that you know when I I landed up um, you know working at a radio station in South Africa many years ago and I started out there answering phone calls you know if there was no job answer for someone to answer phone calls uh, how would I have just been helicoptered and, and and parachuted into being on air would have been incredibly difficult. So the dynamic certainly it does change. I mean, it's a very good point. Mark Andresen, who's uh, from Andresen Horowitz, one of the most uh, successful and well-known Silicon Valley venture capital companies. He also founded uh, Netscape, which was, you know, the, one of the, the big defining moments of the Internet. He's very bullish. He's very positive. He says there's been a lot of times in history where we've thought – that it's going to be, you know, cause a major problem when the, the steam engine has replaced the, the horse and carts and the cars replaced the horse and people are going to, the industries are just going to be decimated and people lose their jobs. And he says, society's adjusted. It's, it's always, I mean, we don't have blacksmiths anymore. You know, we don't have saddle makers anymore. But, 
you know, we do have truck drivers and we do have mechanics and we do have um, people that make traffic lights. So, but I think the where I slightly disagree with them is that the, the, the scope and the scale of the potential shift that's about to happen is a little bit, um, and the speed is a little bit different to, 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 to transitioning from horse to car. Definitely, definitely. But then at the same time, I also think, well, there could be an argument to, uh, you know, for example, the blacksmith and stuff that when, when you're born and you're growing up, you know, you don't really miss what you never had. So over time, these jobs get phased out, but like no, nobody's going to, no teenager today is going to be like, oh, I, I wish I could be a blacksmith because they've never had to think about it and it was never an option to start with. So I suppose the jobs today that get phased out will be replaced with different jobs and over time people won't miss them because it was never on the table to start with. I think what Mark Andreessen's arguing is that humans are incredibly adaptable and our societies are incredibly adaptable. And the dystopian yeah. view that um, the sky is going to fall is just not going to happen. There will be some people that will feel some pain and that's definitely not fun when you thought that one that's 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 the result of that but there will be other benefits that will flow on from that and the aim is that everyone has meaningful work and whatever that meaning means to them everyone should be able to you know that's certainly an aim of the world is everyone should should have access to meaningful work should they want it definitely definitely and then and who's to say that there won't be another huge industry around the corner that nobody's even tapped into yet there are going to be many 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 industries around the corner. just to so look at social media look how many people are social media managers and marketers today i mean 10 years ago that didn't even exist so there's going to be many many exciting jobs around the corner so the the benefits are going to be many anyway we we uh we probably should leave it there, Kate. <laughs> we digress a little bit. We digress a little bit. But that's, you know, that's the aim of the podcast is we try to let people in on a conversation that hopefully is interesting to them. Um, let us know if you're listening, podcast at itsamonkey.com. Remember, next week, episode 100, I'm going to be chatting to Kevin Kelly, um, the very well-known and incredibly intelligent Kevin Kelly, whose latest book is The Inevitable understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape your future i've been listening to the audio version of the book i've been really getting into the audio versions of books i love it because i can do it listen in the car while i'm exercising while i'm walking to work i'm also listening kate to cheryl sandberg's option b and that's oh, that her new book that's a new book she wrote with a, a psychologist friend and it's all about resilience building resilience and she's uses as a starting point the unfortunate's fact that she lost her husband a couple of years ago he was still pretty young still in his 40s and her journey working through that and and some of the research around resilience and getting through tough times really recommend option b i'm enjoying listening to that you know life is very much about loss for us all in some shape manner or form we unfortunately all have to deal with it and it's um it's, it's a really good book that that breaks it down how we can you use the trauma and the loss to grow as a growth yeah. experience, which is easier said than done, but she gives some frameworks and approaches that are really interesting. So if you're looking for a nice book, Option B by Cheryl Sandberg is good as well. 
We're going to catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, my name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO of Manage Flitter. And I've been chatting with Kate Frappel, who is the design lead at Manage Flitter. Both of us are also going to be working on Manage Social. And you'll hear from us next week. Thanks for listening. See you later.